as we as we talked about last week, Parker introduced us. We're in an Advent series this morning. We're actually in the season of Advent, and this is the second Sunday in Advent. And we know that people all over the world, not just us, but people all over the world in their churches and in their homes, they're observing Advent together in this season. They're in fact even reading the same passages together that we are. They're talking about the same scriptures together that we are. They're singing some of the same songs that we are, you know. We're doing this together as, as the global body of, of Jesus, right? Like the global church um, entering into this season and this time of year. Um, let me ask you a question. What do you think about when you think about Advent? Do you think primarily about Advent being about Christmas? Do you think, man, I love Christmas? I think Parker maybe asked this question last week, but how many of you, like Christmas is your favorite time of the year? Raise of hands. Yeah, that's awesome. Maybe you think about Advent primarily as the observation of the first coming of Jesus, right? Being born as a baby. And so you love this season. You think about it being merry and bright, Jesus coming, being born and on the earth. Isn't that hope? That's hope. But for some of us, Advent or the Christmas season is anything but merry and bright. Maybe you've come to dread Christmas because Christmas is a time where we're going to be alone. Or maybe when we think about Christmas, we look at the table and we think about how full it used to be or, or who we used to be with and who used, where we used to go and who we were with. And So maybe for some of you, Christmas is not as merry and bright. Maybe Christmas is tinged with a little bit of sadness. And because of what used to be, you know, and and in Christmas, maybe you think of loss. And if that's you, I, I, I just want you to know that we're here for you. You're not alone. This this body, this this community is here for you. We're with you. We're here for you. And even more than that, this season is actually for you. If you fall into that camp today and you've come to Advent and you've thought, oh no, it's Christmas again. I'm going to have to think about all of that again. I'm going to have to wrestle again with that, those feelings or that loss or that pain. I just want you to consider that maybe Advent actually has more to do, more to do with you than you might think. Because if you actually look at, at, at what Advent is, if you look at anything in the book of common prayer, or if you look at liturgies around Advent, what you'll find is Advent is actually tinged with sadness. If you look at Advent, you look at the way that the global church has observed it over the years, last 2,000 years, you'll find that it's actually more about lament. Lament that the Lord once came and then he left. And so Advent is actually about sort of being in a valley between one high place and another high place, his first coming and when he's gonna come again. And so let me just pray one more time and, and we'll jump into the message. Jesus, I just thank you for today. Father, I thank you for for your goodness and your kindness, God. That you come to us where we are. You've come to us. In your greatest display of love, you've demonstrated that through sending your son, the perfect image of you, the perfect representation of your heart to bring us back into relationship with you, to reconcile us to the Father. So I ask that you would do that again today, this morning. Bring us to you. Reconcile our hearts to, to you. Your, your eyes are looking at us. You're not far away. 
So anywhere that we feel a distance, anywhere we feel a gap, God, I ask that you would close that by your spirit, coming close. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to confess something to you guys right now. I used to not like Christmas songs. Like, I used to not like Christmas carols. Um, I've changed. I've repented um, slowly. But (laughs) I used to not like them, mostly because some of them are really annoying musically to me, just to me. Um, And they start playing before Thanksgiving in some places, and that's ridiculous. But, um, But also because it's like, Jesus... Jesus, you came, but to be honest, we still have all this darkness and sadness in the world, and it's hard to be so joyous. Like, I used to feel that way, and so I didn't really like those, the songs that much. Um, I was a little Grinch. Um, anyone else? Maybe it's just me. Um, have you ever, while singing Christmas carols, like, stopped and you're like, wait, are these Christmas carols about when he first came or when he, he's coming back? Like, joy to the world. Take joy to the world. Um, how many of you know that joy to the world is about him coming back again more than it is about his coming the first time? It's, it's about joining heaven and earth in the reign of Jesus when he comes back and makes all things new. All that to say, Advent actually is a liturgy of hope and lament in the midst of a time when we live, again, between the first coming and the second coming. It's more like a valley, which is why this series that we're in is is titled The Bright Valley. And if it's a valley, that means what Advent is about is about light coming into dark places. The areas of our lives in which a shadow has been cast, becoming illuminated by the light of God's goodness and hope that we have in him. Advent is fundamentally about hope. And so each week we want to talk about hope and light valley. You heard a little bit about that last week. If you were here, you listened online. And, and this morning in the reading, we talked about that hope. And, and I just want to focus in what that hope is really about. And primarily, that hope is centered about leadership. Centered about leadership. How many of you experience the feeling or have experienced the feeling that our world right now feels like a valley? Doesn't it feel a little bit like a valley? Does anybody feel like, man, used to, man, things used to be pretty good, but now I don't know? Maybe you're like, wait, what? I don't know. Things are going great for me. But others of you are like, yeah, it's absolutely true. Here's one of the ways that I think that it's, it's like a valley, the time that we're living in right now. You know, suspicion is at an all-time high. Suspicion about leaders, suspicion about things going on, conspiracies, but suspicion about leaders is at an all-time high. Would you agree that suspicion about leadership is at an all-time high? It's t- kind of tangible in the air, right? You can feel it in our culture. And so we could go through every institution and talk about all the ways that leaders have maybe disappointed or enraged us, right? That would be depressing, <laughs> but, but nevertheless true. We could go through and say some things about government, school, business, but let's just stay close to home for a moment and talk about the church. The uncovering of the systemic abuse in the Catholic church and the Southern Baptist denomination and charismatic and and evangelical churches and parachurch ministries and missions, we've seen some of our most important leaders succumb to moral failure. We've had our own crisis of leadership in the Vineyard Movement, 
the church that was like the flagship of, of the movement in Anaheim, California, um, is embroiled in a lawsuit because its new leaders have taken the church out of the vineyard movement, presumably for its more than $60 million worth of assets. Leaders, unfortunately, have failed us. They've disappointed us. They've wounded us. God forbid, abused us, um, betrayed us, and enraged us. In my own life, one of the most influential leaders and, and teachers in my life growing up, in my teens, in my early 20s, someone whom I, I disagree with on a few theological points now, but still have held in the highest regards, held in the highest regards, and have even taken time recently to learn from his teaching in the past, in, the past, in this past year, but in the last couple of months, multiple allegations have been charged against him for moral, spiritual, and sexual abuse. And it's painful. I still have friends that are part of that ministry for over 20 plus years, and I can't imagine what they're going through. Can't imagine it. Part of why we observe Advent is because we need to be reminded that in the in-between spaces, there's a real leader who once came and changed the universe. And he's, he set it back on its way to being made right. And he's, he's coming back to finish the job. We have to know that in the in-between spaces. We have, to, we have to know that leader. We have to pledge allegiance to that leader. Despite however we've been hurt by other leaders, this is a leader who will be led by the Spirit, who is gentle and lowly, one who's meek, whose character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's actually the reason that we observe Advent, to remind ourselves that a real leader who once came is coming back again. And this brings us to our text this morning, Isaiah 11, which what James read this morning, which you heard at the beginning of the service. And in Isaiah's time, there was also a crisis of leadership. Israel was beset by poor leaders from within, and from outside coming to invade. The northern kingdom of Israel, allied with its neighboring Aram, and turned against the southern kingdom, Judah, and King Ahaz of Judah, trusted in their enemies, the Assyrians, rather than God, to protect his land. This was the biggest crisis of Isaiah's lifetime, and this event is at the very center of Isaiah's prophecy. Israel ends up becoming utterly destroyed, the northern kingdom, and it's never going to recover. They never return from exile, those people. The southern kingdom does return from exile eventually, but no dynasty in the northern kingdom was ever restored. So let's start with the leadership failure all around them. So let's turn back. You know, we read Isaiah 11, but let's turn back to Isaiah 10. Here God, you can pull it out in your Bibles if you want. It's gonna be on the screen. Here God declares that judgment is gonna come to Assyria for not showing mercy to Israel or Judah. And he says, I'm going to punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Picking up in verse 17. And the light of Israel will become a fire, their holy one a flame. In a single day, it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. The splendor of his forests and fertile fields will be completely destroyed, as when a sick person wastes away. And the remaining trees of his forest will be so few that a child could write them down. That's intense and interesting language he's using there. It's important to understand that in the Old Testament, forest is a symbol of exaltation and glory. And it's meant to show the splendor of a nation. 
And here is the Lord coming against that nation that's devastated Judah. And the symbol of the forest being stripped and destroyed and consumed is how he communicates it. But it's not just the forest of Assyria. It's also the forest or the splendor of Judah, here called Israel. God calls Judah Israel here, so that could be a little confusing. But if, if you don't understand the history and, and know that those two nations kind of separate, there was one nation, the, the tribes separated to form northern and southern part. But, but God calls them Israel because they're always supposed to be one people, always supposed to be one nation. In his eyes, they're one. And so he, he calls Judah Israel because to him they're one. Now remember, leadership crisis. So first the king of Assyria, and then the leaders of Israel. One chapter earlier, if you flip a page to Isaiah 9, verse 14, it says, so the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and the dignitaries are the head. The prophets who, le- prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. God's judgment will come to the leaders in Israel and Judah who have failed in their leadership, who trusted in Assyria rather than God. He also says in Isaiah 6 that the land is going to be utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it again will be laid waste. But as the terebinth tree and the oak tree leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The holy seed will be the stump in the land. Remember, forests, splendor, glory, these things are going to be getting cut down, right? That's what he's saying. In other words, the holy seed, Israel, the chosen, is a dead tree. You know what a stump looks like, right? It's been cut down, it's dead, right? Okay, that's a lot, lot, lot of buildup for chapter 11. Thanks for sticking through me on that. But to be clear, I just want to be clear what's happening here. Isaiah is a prophet that's sent to warn the nation to take seriously their call. They have a call on their, on their nation, on their people, to be a, a strange and holy nation that's going, to bring, that's going to bring blessing to the rest of the world. They're going to be a holy nation that brings blessing to the rest of the world, to their neighbors, and they're not doing that. And so Isaiah's coming to, to say, hey, you're not doing this, you're failing in this, and God has things to say about this. And they're not taking seriously the call to be a blessing to the nations around them, and the call to be holy. All their leaders have failed, all their kings have failed, They're listening to false prophets. Their priests have no faith. They're corrupt. They're looking for a life outside of what they're made for. And they're looking to sinful men to get it. And so so God gives it to them. He gives, gives to them what they're chasing after. Despite warning after warning from true prophets like Isaiah, they didn't listen. Their disobedience results in discipline. And that discipline is exile. For God's mercy... God disciplined the nation to turn the people's hearts back to him because only in him can true life be found. God gave Israel and Judah over to foreign nations, Assyria and then Babylon and then eventually Rome. And so for the next 700 years, they're looking for a new king. Leaders arise and fall, but none of them are a king. None live up to the glory of the past. They need something, someone more than a great leader, more than a good king. They need a deliverer. They need a prince of peace, a Messiah who will save them, a prophet who will bring them the heart of the Father and a perfect priest, just as we do today. We need those things today. 
but I'm getting ahead of my, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's rewind and see what God's promise will be despite what's looming over them, despite what they're entering into. God still has a promise for them. He's not gonna totally forsake them. So here's, here's where we are. Israel's glory is chopped down, a dead stump. The nation of Assyria, it's a ravaged forest. The king of Assyria is utterly humiliated. It's coming. It's just a few short years later, and Assyria is pretty much gone. Babylon takes over and is like the ruling, ruling power of the world. And, and where are they going to turn? What, who's going to save this nation? This takes us up to our passage today. So go ahead and turn to 11, and let's start in verse 1. Let's read. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Stop there. Read that again. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. What's that mean? Out of this dead stump, the stump of Jesse, the father of David, who was their greatest king in in their minds, King David was the greatest leader of Israel, a shoot is coming out of this, out of this this line, out of this, this bloodline. A shoot, a humble branch. This is the news that's bursting out of Isaiah. You see, as we read through these chapters, I get the distinct impression, maybe you do too, if you spend a lot of time in Isaiah, that he couldn't wait to get to the good news of this shoot, this deliverer, this Messiah, the one who's gonna save. He says, all all your leaders up to this point have failed you, but I've got good news for you. A new leader is coming. And this is the meat of our message today. Against all odds, out of the shorn stump of Jesse comes a shoot, a king who will bring salvation and deliverance. Life comes out of what was dead. Sounds like a story of a cross and resurrection a little bit. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. This shoot, this branch that we must spend the rest of our time talking about today, out of what is dead is gonna come a leader, the leader that we should all hope for. And so as we do, I have to confess, there's really one goal of this message, and that's to light up your eyes about this leader to magnify this leader, to zero in on who he is, because he's amazing. He's the best thing ever. He's the prince of peace, Isaiah calls him. And that's the only application really for today is to to magnify him. And so there's three things that I want to highlight that I want to shine upon about this leader. Number one is the spirit-led nature of this king. Number two is the justice of this king. And number three is the rule of this king. So let's look at the first one, the spirit-led nature of this king. So look again back at chapter 11, picking up in verse two. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. This king is not gonna rule on expertise or technique and certainly not on human capacity. No, this king is gonna be divinely empowered by the spirit. This is impossibly good news and meaningful for the Israelites. Their Messiah, the Messiah, that word means anointed one. One way to read that is anointed by the very spirit of God. So here's this new leader that's coming, this new king. He's gonna come from the tribe of Jesse, the promised king from the line of David. This king is more than a king than David ever was. He's way better than David ever was. The triple the weight of spirit wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. It's almost like added emphasis. This is is gonna be a Messiah, a leader who will be characterized by the very breath of of God about him, 
and on him and in him. When it comes down to it, isn't that the kind of leader that you want? That the kind of king you want? I want that kind of leader. Don't you want a king that's characterized by the very breath of God in him and surrounding him and empowering him? Don't you want a leader who doesn't just make the best decisions because it might be expedient or might be successful or, or the hype of the day or the best new idea, but because this leader is one with the Spirit and led by the Spirit? Don't you want a leader who's endued and soaked with that Spirit? I want that leader. That's the leader I want. It seems to me at this moment in time, we need this leader. one who won't be swayed by the anxiety of the moment, a leader who isn't influenced by the toxicity of the culture and one who isn't adding to that toxicity. We need a leader who's one with the Spirit and with the Father. Edward, Edwin Friedman, if you've heard of him, he's a Jewish rabbi, therapist, leadership guru, writer. He tells us in, the, in his book, The Failure of Nerve, that we all need leaders. Leaders who can act as our immune system taking in all the viruses of our age and transmitting to us health and vitality instead. It's almost an impossible task, right, to do that. But not for this king, because this king has the spirit. And I can understand the impulse, an impulse I shared for a lot of years that animates so many Christians when it comes to elections. We jump at any candidate who sh shows a shred of Christian faith. Why? Because even though many of us, most of us, have never held a political office and never will, we're acutely aware of how large a task leading is in our day. We know how hard that is. And we know that divine intervention is in order. And even in despite whatever faith a leader, you know, great or small, whatever that faith level is that a leader in this day might exhibit, realistically, those leaders often affect little change, unfortunately. Because they're under or part of a system that is running on human effort and ultimately tainted with corruption. We need something dramatically different. But here Isaiah is saying, fear not, that king is actually coming. And then the season of Advent, we celebrate the fact that he's already come. And this, this is the king that we're all waiting for. He's actually already come. And what's the system that he's gonna employ? It's gonna be different. It's gonna be soaked with justice. And so the justice of this king, let's, let's look at verse three, Isaiah eleven three. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide with, by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he'll judge the needy. With justice, he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. Look, this king is not gonna judge by appearances, but instead he's gonna bring justice to the needy. He's gonna make decisions for the poor of the earth, those who have been overlooked. In other words, he's gonna have the capacity to do all the right things in all circumstances. There's gonna be nothing blocking him. And especially he's gonna to attend to the needy and the poor, which Israel's kings failed to do again and again. In fact, righteousness and faithfulness are such a fundamental part of his nature that, that who this king is, Isaiah calls these things, these qualities, a waistcloth, a sash around his waist, or the it's undergarments, or the, the garments of a person going out to do some kind of strenuous activity or war, battle. 
So I want to spell this out. Even if we don't consider ourselves poor or needy, what this especially means is that this king is not going to be swayed by the rich or powerful or even the celebrity. He'll have his heart turned to those who are underneath society. He won't judge with his eyes and what he hears with his ears. This is exactly the opposite of what we do, isn't it? Like, we make all sorts of judgments all the time based on a person's um, appearance or what they say or what they do or the way that they talk. Our prejudice and biases are no more than skin deep. When we take time to get to know a person, we can peel away these biases. But we often dismiss people before we even get a chance. This doesn't just happen on a personal level. It's structural. We have to understand it's structural. Our nation has created systems based off these things. Businesses have created systems based off these things. And as Brian Stevenson, lawyer and advocate for justice says, the criminal justice system treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. It's just the world that we live in. The fact of the matter, but not our king, not our king. He doesn't do that. Let me switch gears a little bit. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been under the leadership of a person who never gave you the chance? Never gave you a chance. Looked at you before even getting to know you, saw some things you did and wrote you off. Have you ever felt like you couldn't do anything to make your way into their good graces? That's not Take a moment and imagine a king who would completely break the systems of governance of our world and restructure everything, not on the basis of appearance or rumor or bribes or corruption or reaction to the fears of this world, but on the wisdom and the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. In other words, his rule, his structural rule, defies human efforts to seek our own good at the expense of others. His rule will bring peace that's gonna stretch out to the farthest horizon. Won't be an area that it doesn't reach. The quality of his rule will be utterly extraordinary. That's the last point. The quality of his rule is justice. The effect of his rule is peace. What happens when a just king is in charge? Peace. When a just king is in charge, peace happens. So let's look at the rule of this king. Listen to what Isaiah Isaiah describes next in verse six. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hands into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy all on my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what happens when you have a just king, peace. The effect of his kingly rule, Jesus' kingly rule is peace, confounding peace. Every image, every metaphor here is meant to communicate that there's no corner of God's good creation that's untouched by this peace. A wolf with a lamb, a leopard with a goat, a little child, the most vulnerable, unprotected, leading these ravenous animals, this is the effect, yes. When Jesus is in charge, this is the effect. Because this king, because of this king, the earth is gonna be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea, In him is this knowledge, in him is the promise of this knowledge stretching into every single person, every single situation, every every single being in God's good creation, even the animals. 
It's good news. It's, it's the new Eden, right? Coming. And here's what this passage means to me. It means that this effective peace is complete. It's not just the king making peace. It's everybody else making peace too. Even the animals. The circle of peace extended to you and to me is complete because we extend peace everywhere too. So I have a, a video we're going to play. It's a really short video by the Bible Project. Turn that audio on too and I'll hit the lights for you. We'll watch that for a second. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace.
think that's an awesome video. Really sums it up. In other words, the best news of this coming king is that you and I can be completely and totally changed. We can let our enmities die. We can be this kind of peaceable people if we're willing and able participants, not just recipients. We get, we get the good rule of the king in our lives. We also get to do the good rule of the king. An analogy of this is um, with our son Isaiah. If, if you've seen him running around here, he acts like the own, he owns the place. He's up on stage and playing drums during the service and different things like that. And he's one of the reasons why you should give so we can <laughs> make a door out there. Because um, he needs it and so do we. But, you know, he really wants to try to do the things that Lynn and I do. Like when Lynn's cooking, he wants to be up there, you know, get his stool up and be up there doing it. He wants to go on the hikes and walks. He wants to do the dance moves. He wants to wrestle. He wants to um, play the video games with me. He wants to do all the things that we do. And he sees us do. He wants to do them. He wants to try them and do it with us. And he gets to try. We let him try. That's why he acts like he owns the place, because he gets to try so much. Um, The good news is that there's going to be a rule and reign and you and I get to try as much as we want. We're part of that reign. We're not just occupants in the land where we get to experience the byproduct of a good king. We're not just spectators. We're the vice regents of this king. We get to play. Not just when he comes back, but now. Not later, now. Every day of our lives, right now, we get to make way for, the, for that peace to usher in that peace now. It's the promise of Advent that in the valley, the peace of the just king can make its way into our world ahead of schedule or right on schedule. Look, this is how I think about leadership. I don't think leadership means being forceful or charismatic or dynamic. I think it's about how how we are under the leader, how we are under that leader. That's why I think two of the most important activities that we do are number one, pray. It's vital that we get our direction from the Spirit. And number two is to allow ourselves to be known by this leader in the deep places of our lives. In the last quarter of this year, I've been engaging in a course that the Vineyard USA has put out called Emotionally Focused. Lynn, myself, Parker, and Bree have attended, attended a two-day intensive in, in September called Foundations, and now I'm doing a second step titled Formation. There's actually a lot more if, if you want to do those things, but it's a six-month course that I'm doing right now with people from all over the world. And what it is, it, it's an amazing and an amazingly tough course, <laughs> um, diving into the things that have formed us in our lives and the worldviews that we've developed or been given that form our actions and our reactions and our responses looking at our foundation points in our lives and exposing what we've been building upon. Looking at the experiences in our lives where we may have assigned a meaning to an experience and then formed a vow or a way to live in reaction or response to to the emotions connected to those experiences and to future experiences that we have around our actions or the actions of others. Vows that we've made for ourselves and the way that we're gonna live like because this happened to me, because I experienced this, or because they were like this, I will never do blank. Those kind of things. Or like, when I felt this way and this thing happened, 
I'll do everything I can, and it hurt, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid anything similar so I don't feel that way again. Those kind of vows is what I'm talking about. Um, looking at areas of our lives where we might have shame or even created a public self that's different than our, who we truly are inside. Looking at places where there's gaps in our integrity, and integrity not necessarily meaning doing right and wrong, but gaps where we're not living true to the full identity and calling and destiny that God's placed on our life. It's really about allowing ourselves to be known by God in every area of our lives and developing rhythms and practices to encounter God and allow him to shine a light and bring healing and transformation and bring his rule and his peace and his order and way of living into every area of life and then our, our actions aligning with that. I'm sharing this because I need you to know that I didn't just sign up for this because it sounded fun. <laughs> like, I signed up because I need to do it. And a lot of the leaders that, that we have in our lives, they're not, they're not always doing that, unfortunately. But the leadership of the one that we call the leader, he's all about this. And so I want you to know that it's the inner work that the leaders of this church are committing ourselves to. We want to do that work in our own lives. We're far from perfect. At some point, we'll do and we'll say things that you might not like. We might let you down. We might accidentally hurt you. We don't want to do any of those things, but God and God help us not to. But the, but the thing is, we might. And the beautiful thing, in spite of that, is that, and the important thing that I want you to know is that the King that is in these verses that we're reading in, the, in chapter eleven, he's the ruler. He's the leader of this church. Not just John, Parker, myself, Kim, Lynn, you know. Jesus is the ruler of this church. He's the king of this church. He's the leader of this church. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to hurt you. He's never going to overlook you. And as leaders, we want to be about the work of making way, clearing the way, ushering his peace into our own lives and into your lives and into the lives of the people in this city. And so to end what we've been talking about today and reading about this all, to borrow a musical term, is a crescendo, leading us to the doorstep of Advent. We believe that this messianic prophecy in Isaiah is about a king whose name is Jesus. We look at this passage and say, of course it's Jesus. He came 2,000 years ago. He walked upon the earth. He was that tender shoot descended from Jesse, humble, small, born in a dingy manger. Jesus, while he was here on the earth, demonstrated righteousness, he was unmoved by the powers of the day, unwavering in his mission. Jesus demonstrated care for the poor and needy everywhere he went. Jesus demonstrated justice for those who needed it. Jesus affected a total and complete structural change on the cosmic level, on the spiritual level, in the systems of the universe by actually defeating them, defeating the ruler of this world through a branch, a, a, a tree, a scorn, a cross, his blood-stained robes, his waistcloth. And then from a stump-like death, he rose again on the third day so we too could have and experience this peace. And all of that's a down payment for what's to come. It's pictured in these glorious verses. As you've heard me say, Advent is, is anticipation, not just observation of Jesus' first coming, but glorious expectation of the other. This is that expectation. We live in the valley between the two comings, but it's bright because our king is coming back again. And, and he's coming back again. We hope and we long for that day, but the beautiful thing is that that brightness of his light is coming. It's breaking into now. 
kingdom is at hand. He can come to us right now by his spirit. And so I want to read Jesus' words again. It's in that video from John 14, verse 27, and pray. I leave the gift of peace with you, my peace. Not the kind of fragile peace given by the world, but my perfect peace. Don't yield to fear. Don't be troubled in your hearts. Instead, be courageous. Let's stand. We're gonna go into worship. I'm gonna pray for us. Put out your hands if you want. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your spirit. Jesus, thank you for sending your spirit. I just ask right now, spirit, spirit of God, fall upon us. You're the helper. You're the gift from God, the gift of God himself, his presence. You're the spirit of peace. Come right now. Bring your peace that, suppress, that surpasses our understanding. Bring peace to our souls. Bring your peace and your hope to the areas where a shadow has been cast, where we've experienced loss or pain. Bring your peace and your order to the chaos and unformed areas of our lives. Bring your peace to our relationships, to our marriages, to our families, to our children, in our homes, in our friend groups, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Bring your peace. We long for your leadership. We long for your righteousness and faithfulness and your justice. We say yes to your leadership, yes to your kingship, yes to your rule, your rule, your way, your kingdom. As you are, we long to be. We long for your peace. And so would you fill us up? Enable us, God. Would you send us out? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we continue in worship, there's communion up here and we wanna take it together so you're free as we go into worship to come up as you want to, to, to partake. And, and I just want you to think about that peace as you do that. His body broken, his blood poured out for you to bring peace into your life. That's what we do when we partake of this meal. We take in that peace. And if you're here and you'd like to receive prayer for anything this morning, we want to pray for you. We believe that the presence of God is here right now to heal. Heal any and all physical needs, to heal emotional needs, to heal spiritual needs, to heal wounds, to bring peace into every area of life. So if you're here this morning and you, and you want prayer, we're gonna have people in the back praying. And if you're also here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you'd like to, you've heard about this and you're like, I wanna know more, we wanna introduce you to it. And so I'll be back in the back and others will be back in the back. We want to introduce you to him and we want to pray with you. So come and join us.